Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. nineteen fifty six a man named Jose Gutierrez changed the art world when he put into mainline production the use of what would now be called acrylic paint. For centuries, artists had used oil paint or watercolor for their primary medium to create portraits, and because of some scientific advancements in the 1940s. By the 1950s, Gutierrez was able to create a a mass-produced new form of medium, this acrylic paint. And the promise was that it would be able to dry faster and texture better. And it began to accelerate the need and the production of art. That has obviously accelerated even more now with the advent of digital art and technology and how that plays into the creation of things. And there's one such artist in our contemporary space that has seen all of this rapid pace as a deterrent to what art has always been. This long painstaking process to create beauty. Makato Fujimura is a world renowned artist who has created multiple portraits uh, that have been displayed in galleries all around the world. And one such portrait is called the Lily. Um, the, it's called Consider the Lilies. It's one of my favorite portraits by Fujimura. And it displays what would be seemingly this simple portrait of a blue background and this simple lily kind of coming through the background. But his technique is what makes the art beautiful. In this particular portrait, it says it's done with over 80 layers of finely pulverized precious minerals, urzerite and malachite, oyster shell white, and painted with sumi ink that has been cured for over a century, as well as a gold and platinum powders mixed with hide glue, Japanese sanzibon, which is no longer being made to adhere the minerals onto a hand-pulled Japanese paper. The painting depicts Easter lilies with Trumvian flowers opening up with the suggestion that even these common lilies are transformed into post-resurrection generative reality. This style of art is known as Nihonga, also known as slow art. Fujimura has become famous for this slow art, his mixture of certain glues and crushed minerals and paint as sometimes take weeks or months to dry or to apply the next layer. But at the end of it is this masterpiece. In his reflection, he talks about how this process of making informs his theology. He says, Jesus' love extends beyond a utilitarian need to survive or our pragmatic need for a savior. Jesus' love is gratuitous, extravagant, and costly. My art imitates this through the use of expensive minerals, gold, and platinum, and a reliance on a slow process that fights against efficiency. Experiencing God through a creative process may fight against our assumption that such a process can be done by taking in data and processing it efficiently. 
The thinker Francis Schaeffer says that there's no work of art more important than the Christian's life. And every Christian is called to be an artist in this sense. The Christian's life is to be a thing of truth and also a thing of beauty in the midst of a lost and despairing world. N.T. Wright talks about here is the challenge, I believe, for the Christian artist in whatever sphere to tell the story of the new world so that people can taste it and want it, even while acknowledging the reality of the desert in which we presently live. Now, why are we talking about this slow process of art? Because I believe it to be a beautiful metaphor of the space and time that we inhabit, what theologians call the now and the not yet, this beautiful in-between space of the cross and new creation, of resurrection and eternal life. This world that you and I, as we watch this video or listen to this podcast, are living in, both acknowledging the brokenness of our world, but also believing the, the reception of a beautiful new one and the promise of its fulfillment in the future. We are in this slow process of God making something beautiful. We are waiting for the paint to dry of the portrait of the resurrection, if you will. And Jesus talks to his disciples about this time and space, about while we wait for the consummation of all things. And right before he goes to the cross in John's gospel in the 13th chapter, he says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He goes on to say, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do not you do know him and have seen him. This beautiful passage is Jesus preparing his followers, his disciples, for the moment we now live in. The moment post his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, while we wait for the consummation of all things, for the new creation. And as he's talking about this, he points out three things that have happened or are going to happen that he's participating in. And there's three things that are our role, things that we're supposed to do. The things that he's going to be doing is, number one, he's going to go to the cross in just a couple chapters after this. Secondly, he talks about that he's going to go and prepare a place for us. And lastly, he talks about there's a way that he is paving for us and how to live. And our response to this is he calls us into 
a radical type of love. He also calls us into a certain posture of our heart that's marked by peace and rest. And lastly, he invites us to surrender to the way in which that he's provided for us. So I just want to, I want us to put the paintbrush into the hands of each person listening here to, to join in the, the canvas that God is painting. I want to all invite us into the slow art of the now and the not yet, the in-between space and and particularly these three things, how the cross creates in us a radical type of love, how his preparation creates in us a rested heart, and how his way creates in us a relational surrender. So you notice that the first thing is that Jesus starts talking about, so where I'm going, you cannot come. Theologians debate if he's talking about returning to his father or if he's talking to the cross because he says, you can't go there now, but you will. And we know that Peter wasn't able to go to the cross in the same way that Jesus did. He was never able to bear the sacrifice in the way that Jesus did. But at the end of his life, Peter himself would be crucified. And it's within that context of Jesus describing his own self-sacrificial love that he looks at his disciples and says something quite interesting. He says, I'm giving you a new command to love one another. Now, for his Jewish disciples and Jesus being Jewish, Loving your neighbor was not a new command. Leviticus 19 informs every, uh, every Israelite that they are to love their neighbor as themselves. But the new element of this command is Jesus says, I want you to love others the way I have loved you. John Stott points out that this raised the ante considerably. The measure of love for their neighbor was no longer their love of themselves, but Jesus's love for them. This is a radical different ante. It begins with, hey, love people the way you love yourself. It's kind of like the golden rule. Treat others the way you'd want to be treated. But Jesus says, if you want to be a follower of me, what's about to, what you're about to witness through the cross is that I want you to love people, not just how you yourself would want to be loved. I want you to love people beyond that in the way I've chosen to love you, which is a whole nother level in terms of depth and quality of love. You think about how the, the church in Greek, it's the ecclesia. It means uh, the, the council or the meeting group is supposed to be this alternative community of people. And Jesus says, the world will know you are my disciples by how you love one another in the same way that I've loved you. Our love for one another is the defining attribute of the church. And the reason why this is so big is because Peter in this very moment says, I, I'm willing to lay my life down for you. And Jesus says, oh, I don't think so. And it reminds us that what's true in Peter is true in many of us that Sometimes it's easier to want to die for Christ than it is to just want to live for him. And the way I see this worked out is I, I see many Christians angry, sometimes righteously so, about things that aren't the way they should be. And, and they're defending Christian values, but they're doing it in a way that's not Christ-like. We forget that within Christ's economy, there can't be an us versus them because the minute that there is, we fail to love our neighbor the way Christ loved us because while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And so at the epicenter of the, the art that God is creating in this moment, 
is our ability to love those who feel unlovable. And that is the definitive marker of us being his followers. And this is why in Colossians, when Paul's writing, he says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit. What kind of fruit? Verse 7 says, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and who has told us of your love in the Spirit. So the Colossians' reputation around the world was what? How they love in the Spirit. And T. Wright says, there is now a community which is living as a highly unlikely, unpredictable family, a community sharing common life as a family across traditional boundaries. Life together that was unprecedented in the ancient world. There was a community of love that was being developed that the world had never seen before and ought to continue to be marked by that same thing. And this is why John Stott again says, Lovelessness among believers nullifies their witness to the world and reveals them as hypocrites. So that's our first thing. What do we do in this in-between space as the paint is waiting to dry? What, how do we join in the art that God is making? Simply put, we must love. And we must love the enemy. We must love those who are hard to love, those who have not given us a reason to love them back. And we must do this in the name and in the manner of Jesus. Because when we love like that, we are creating, helping create the masterpiece that Jesus had in mind. The second level of instruction that Jesus gives the disciples for this, this speech on the in-between has to do with what he's doing right now. It says that he's going away to prepare a place for us. This image, this imagery draws from the Jewish uh, wedding tradition where they would go and they would propose uh, to their wife-to-be, the husband would. And it would normally be more of a family bartering conversation than a like really cute proposal on YouTube. And in this uh, bartering proposition, what would happen is once there was an agreed upon between the two families of this marriage, the husband would actually go away. And then he would build an addition onto his father's house. This is where Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. So Jesus is actively building out the expansion of his father's house until that time comes in Jewish history, knowing be about nine months to a year, to go back and to fetch his bride, to bring his bride back. And this is what Jesus is doing right now. He's not just sitting around, crossing his arms, seeing when we're ready. He's actively preparing a place for me and you. And this is so powerful because at the beginning of this picture, he says these words that I, I hope just ring in your heart and in your ears. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because I'm going to prepare a place for you. He puts their heart at rest. Now, circumstantially speaking he's speaking to a group of individuals who are about to lose their messiah about to face significant persecution over the next few decades until all of them would end up being martyred and jesus's words to them is not buckle up 
His words to them is, don't let your hearts be troubled. And I think that that's the message for us while we wait for the paint to dry, as we are in the in-between, between the now and the not yet. It's not buckle down and get ready and white knuckle it and live in fear and prepare. It's do not let your hearts be troubled because Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Charles Spurgeon says that anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. Increasingly, there begin there is a fascination with this idea of the promise of heaven and the afterlife. And this is not new. A matter of fact, from the ancient worlds to the dark ages to the modern world and even the postmodern world, there seems to be this general story arc of people reporting that in near-death experiences, they have this similar experience that they, they experience a sense of light and love unlike anything they've ever experienced, many of them longing for it to return. One such case recently in 2012 came from the neurosurgeon Eben Alexander. He said in Newsweek in 2012 that his experience convinced him that his consciousness, the soul or the self, exists somehow separate from or outside the mind and can travel to other dimensions on its own. The world of consciousness beyond the body, he wrote, is the true new frontier, not just of science, but of humankind itself. And it is my profound hope that what happened to me will bring the world one step closer to accepting it. And so here's this neurosurgeon trained at Duke and Harvard who dismissed all of these claims until he himself, after being in a coma, had a similar experience. Now, this person, from what I know, is not, does not hold to the Christian tradition. But as the neuroscience says, I've had this all wrong. There is something ultimately real outside of what my body and mind can process. And that is exactly what Jesus says. But our surge is not in scientific research or neurology. It's in the words of Jesus. He says, if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare, to prepare a place for you? Meaning, our heavenly home is as real as Jesus himself. The place that he is preparing is as real as the resurrection, my friends. So my, my hope for you is in the in-between. Not only do we love radically, but that our hearts are at rest as well. Our hearts would not be troubled. And I think that maybe for some of you listening or watching this, that's, that's the peace that Christ wants to offer you in this in-between space. That's why Pascal, I think, says, in difficult times, you must keep something beautiful in your own heart. Thirdly, his way creates in us a relational surrender. So Thomas, big famous guy for doubting, speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered with the famous line, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And Jesus' line, I am the way, is one that I think deserves our thoughtfulness and our attention and ultimately our allegiance. Notice that when Jesus shows up on the earth, he never really asks people to align with a certain set of beliefs or doctrine. His continual refrain again and again and again is, follow me, walk with me, stand, keep in step with me. Um, in the past two weeks as a church, 
in between Palm Sunday and Easter, we've had a, over a hundred people uh, make decisions to start following Jesus, which is radical. Um, in the past three weeks, I think we've had close to 60 people be baptized um, from our community. And what this is showing me is all of us need the reminder that in between the now and the not yet, we're not looking to belong to a certain intellectual camp. We're not even looking to belong to a certain religious tradition. We are invited into a way, the way of Jesus. And so if you're a brand new Christian watching this, or if you've been following Jesus for 50 years, the invitation remains. It remained for Peter at the fishing boat, and it remained for him after Jesus restored him after the resurrection. Follow me. We are invited into a way of living. And we, why Jesus came was not only to reconcile us to God, but it was to show us what it means to be human. And so for the next few uh, weeks, over the next really two or three months, we're going to be looking as a church at a letter to the church in Ephesus. And our hope is that we'd be able to ask the question, what is the way of Jesus? What does it mean to follow in the way of Jesus? What is true of us and God and how we ought to live? And my hope is that over the next few weeks, we'd be able to discover that pattern and that process of what it means to follow Jesus. Eugene Peterson is one of my heroes in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, just talks about how our lives are lived well only when they are lived in the terms of their creation. With God loving us and us being loved, with God making us and us being made, with God revealing and us understanding, with God commanding and us responding, being a Christian means accepting the terms of creation, accepting God as our maker and redeemer and growing day by day into increasingly glorious creature in Christ, developing joy, experiencing love, maturing in peace, by the grace of Christ, we experience the marvel of being made in the image. If we reject this way, the only alternative is to attempt the hopelessly forthright, embarrassingly awkward imitation of God made in the image of men and women like us. Meaning this, if we do not submit to the way of Jesus, we will try and make God to submit to our way of humanity our way of preference. And the beautiful invitation of Jesus is as this beautiful portrait has been made and the paint is still waiting to be dry before it's hung in its eternal state. We have an invitation. We have an invitation to respond to the cross, to him preparing a way to his way. And it's this, that we would move in radical love, that we would have rested hearts that we would respond with a relational, intimate surrender. Say, Jesus, you have my life. Make something beautiful in me and make something beautiful of this world while we wait patiently for you. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.